Hello and welcome to this episode of the Future Perfect Talks. Uh, I'm delighted to have three um, super experts in the field of robotics and AEC architecture, engineering and construction. Um, Petr Novikov, Daniel Hall and Brian Ringley. I'll ask them to introduce themselves in a second. Um, but I'm particularly excited uh, by this talk because firstly, this is an area where I know extremely little and I'm very anxious to know how soon we should be worried about the robot takeover. So it's very important that we all know how soon we're going to be subjected by robot overlords. So let's kick off. Petter, why don't you start by sharing who you are and what you're doing and what you have done, and then we'll go around and, and carry on from there. Sure. Um, thanks. Yeah. Um, so um, I'm... I'm a co-founder of uh, a uh, company called Apt. We are focusing on the uh, development of standardized uh, housing in the United States, um, and uh, with with the whole kind of focus and thesis on standardizing the entire development process. Um, previously, I was uh, in the founding team and ran for three years uh, Project Backyard at Airbnb, which um, is still kind of stealth. Uh, and uh, before that, I was focusing on kind of more research and um, academic side of things where uh, we um, started with um, additive manufacturing in construction and uh, some experiments with uh, 3D printing robotics and uh, also did um, uh, worked a couple of years on reconfigurable sp um, spaces, which uh, basically, uh, yeah spaces that can reconfigure to different uses. So that's that's a short story. Great, thank you. Daniel. Thanks for having me, uh, John. And um, yeah, so I'm Daniel Hall and I'm the Assistant Professor of Innovative and Industrial Construction uh, at ETH Zurich in Switzerland. And uh, I guess I would say um, I'm definitely not a roboticist, uh, but I've become very involved with the future of robotics and construction. And the way that happened was I did my PhD at Stanford University. And while I was there, I, I founded an event called the Industrialized Construction Forum, uh, which at the time was quite a small event where we were just talking with some of these interesting startups working on prefabrication and offsite. But I would say this was not really robotically focused. It was more people doing work underneath a roof. Um, and uh, so that movement has continued to grow. I think everyone's aware that there's a lot of buzz and uh, hype, uh, some maybe misplaced or overhyped around prefabrication and offsite. Uh, but then when I finished my PhD, I, I took uh, or I was I was looking at uh, academic positions and interviewed at ETH Zurich and got connected with something called the National Center for Competence in Research on Digital Fabrication and Robotics. And immediately when I saw what they were doing here, I knew this is the place I wanted to be. Um, and it's really uh, providing some of the state of the art in, uh, off, in, in on-site and off-site robotics, um, including in situ fabrication, additive manufacturing, um, uh, yeah, human-robot collaboration, and uh, it's, a, it's quite an exciting place. So um, that's how I've gotten connected with, uh, with the robotics work that's going on here. And uh, I can say more maybe later about some of the specific research we're doing uh, uh, with that center. Brilliant. Thanks, Brian. 
Yeah, hi, uh, Brian Ringley, the Construction Technology Manager at Boston Dynamics. Uh, leading up to Boston Dynamics, I was in the architecture field as a design computation expert at Woods Bagot, then went to work at WeWork as a construction researcher, where I focused on both industrialized construction methods, um, setting up a prefabrication lab and a factory for the prefabrication of our storefront units. And then also testing uh, field robots like Spot, and then actually joined up with Boston Dynamics, where I manage the Spot product in dynamic construction environments. Okay, great. So let's let's take this step by step. So, I mean, maybe Daniel, you, you don't want to comment on this, but I'd actually like your comment anyway. Do we know what robots are, right? Because robots is a phrase that has kind of been bequeathed to us. I assume. I mean, maybe you guys know more than me, but sort of from the 50s or the 40s. Um, and and there's a kind of, I, I, there's an idealized notion of what robots are, but I think maybe we should define from first principles. Maybe start with you, Brian. Do we, does, do we as a society know what robots are and do you as an industry know what robots are? Like an agreed upon definition of the term. I mean, you know, that's tough. Uh, I tend to frame my interest and my professional work around robotics as something that has a physical presence in the world. So it's embodied automation. You know, some people will talk about, you know, pure software and AI methods as, as robotics. And I'm not against that. That's just not where I focus. Mm -hmm. um, and something that has the ability to interact with and manipulate the world around it in an autonomous fa fashion. So to kind of sense and then act relative to a physical environment. So physic, physical, physicality and autonomy are like defining characteristics in your outlook. That's right. Yep. What about you? What, do you, what would you say, Pat, Peter? Um, I agree. I, I also um, think that, I mean, especially in relation to construction, the um, kind of applied aspect of robotics and not just the um, software side um, is, is something that's really, really important. I mean, well, but let's let's let I me mean, let's see if we can get some some sort of more definition. Would you say would you, is is an elevator a robot? Because it has some autonomy, right? So let's say the latest elevators from Kone, right? They have an ability to determine which car which car is going to serve which floor, right? Have some intelligence, and they're highly physicalized. But are they robots? Um, good question. I was I was mainly thinking about the of kind of framework of construction rather than operation, yeah. but uh, right. yeah, it's, it's a good catch. What, what oh, would you say about that, Brian? Yeah, yeah. I mean, if if the, <laughs> it's totally just how I look at things, but uh, it's an interesting conversation. I mean, if if the elevator is is reacting to some sensory input and physically interacting, although in a constrained fashion, but I don't think, you know, there are constrained types of robots and then there are kind of ones that are able to freely move around the world. Um, yeah, sure. Absolutely. Um, and that's why I have a broad fascination with all sorts of machines from forklifts mm. to cars to, to spot. Mm. What would you say, da Daniel? Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting question. And I, I think that, uh, perception robotics, of course, changes over time. And now what, you know, we've had industrial robotics for, for decades now, you know, in factories, and now people kind of just acknowledge those as as kind of robots, but I think in some ways even call these machines and 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 don't really feel like they're robots in the same way that something autonomous and interactive 
like uh, in construction and on-site robotic or, or when you look at other thinking about ro- robots. So um, in my sense, uh, we do not have a good consensus on terminology for robotics. It reminds me, I had a really interesting conversation with uh, a researcher and, uh, and a professor at TU Delft um, in the Netherlands, and they were actually just looking at um, what is uh, roboticization? What is a definition of a robot? And uh, we're actually really interested in exploring that question in the context of AEC. So I think we don't have a, an agreed definition. I mean, I think the reason for asking this question, I mean, for me, the reason for, uh, for asking this question is that it's not to kind of artificially create clarity. It's actually to, to reveal the extent to which what I think is the inevitable, inevitable answer, which is that there's a kind of gradation right, roboticization, increasing autonomy and increasing kind of physical capacity of, of, of technical devices is, is what you would call roboticization. And at some point we know it and, and it, you know, it starts being a machine and it starts being a robot. But, but having a sense of that, I think also means you can wind the clock back and say, oh, wow, look, look at how we adopted these technologies and have, and have, and have normalized them. Because I think one of the things that we'll you know, encounter this, in this conversation is, um, how do we adopt this? How should we adopt this? What are the limits and constraints and risks and so forth? And I think if we have, if we if we look at you know this particular definition as something along along a line, we can also look back on that line rather than forward on that line. So that's you know for me the reason for kind of unpacking this is I think that we'll end up needing to have that sort of you know graded approach to it. Um, do, is there a sense in which um, robotics? in the AEC space or in general, let's, let's talk in general if, if we can for a second, has evolved in, in its general understanding, right? And maybe, maybe again, I'm gonna kind of rely on you here, Brian, is there a sense in which, um, let's say, let's look at industry in general, not necessarily in society, but industry in general, the idea of a robot has become more sophisticated. It's not just a standalone object that does things, that somehow there is a more sophisticated technical understanding or is it still very much in the line of what Boston Dynamics is selling? It's a, it's a thing that has a very definitive autonomy. Hmm. Well, let's see. Sorry, I was partially distracted while you were asking that long question, but um, could you maybe rephrase that for me? Well, so, so it's actually a version of the first question, which is basically, is there a sense in which the definition is evolving to the extent that things that are sort of hybrid entities, right? So in an Amazon factory, for example, all right, there's tons of Amazon warehouse. I mean, there's tons of things that are automated and there are robots. Would you say that that boundary is, is, is sort of starting to blur? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think so. You know, we're, we're kind of a bit flashy in that sense because we're developing, um, you know, relatively new morphologies, you know, leg robots have been around a while, but ones that can actually perform out in real world are it's, it's a relatively new concept. So it's like very obviously a robot Uh walking around on legs. It's a form factor we haven't seen before. Um, Uh but you know, I think that there's, you know, we, we also now have a warehouse robotics team, right? So there's a lot of mm-hmm. interest in how does how does our new kind of warehouse robot interact with a lot of automated equipment in a in a factory? Mm-hmm. And and some of those things mm-hmm. are, are machines we're already familiar with, like like mm-hmm. forklifts um, that have simply been retrofit for automation. And you know, mm-hmm. by the same token, out in civil environments, if you want, you know, Spot, for example, to interact with say something that has some automated machine control again you're dealing with a lot of retrofit machines so i think that i think that 
there are a couple different branches, obviously, of things that are happening. Um, we've got like radical new kind of form factors and kind of dynamic robots that are self-balancing. So it's kind of a new category mm-hmm. of robots. But we also know that in order for that new new breed of robots to have value, there also has to be an awareness of you know this kind of retrofit style automation mm-hmm. that that also you know you could argue is having a, a much mm-hmm. broader impact on the world mm-hmm. in terms of mm-hmm. physical automation. I mean, th- th- this question kind of comes from from this this sort of insight, which is if you take an Amazon, you know, warehouse, you've got packing machines that are attached to sort of, you know, rolling like production lines or you know, sort of distribution systems, and they're they're fixed and they're static and their evolution of you know, more and more mechanicalized, you know, packing systems, but they're highly automated now. They're highly autonomous to a certain degree, and if you just took that packing machine and put it on wheels it would go from being a machine to being a robot to some extent. And so I'm just wondering for you, Daniel, do you feel that that boundary is blurring between mechanization, automation, automation and, and robotics to the extent that it's no longer, it's just more of a kind of em- emphasis in terms of what word you use at some point? Yeah, I would say that the, the, the interesting thing is that I, we're seeing kind of, what I would say is, is two different approaches right now in, in, in robotics, which... Um, on the one side, you have, I would say, what I see is is pretty heavy investment in industrialized assembly lines in factories. Um, mm-hmm. So this would be more like the mechanics, uh, mechatronics idea that you're, you're talking about. And, you know, we're seeing, uh, you know, lots of six axis robots, uh, lots of um, production processes that you hear a lot from this kind of community, the idea of construction as a car manufacturing process. Um, and then we're seeing, I think we're seeing, you know, the, the very first uh, ideas of, of the in situ robots, but not yet for fabrication. So this is where we see spot and we see dusty robotics. Um, and we're starting to see these doing uh, single task uh, or, or, or small tasks that are quite helpful, but not yet to the scale of bu- of installation or, or application of building products on site. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe the... The, the other alternative would be uh, a kind of in situ additive manufacturing like SAM or mm-hmm. um, or three D printing, um, but so th- those would be that'd be kind of where we are seeing seeing those systems. Um, mm-hmm. But what what we don't see is in situ kind of um, human robot cooperation on on construction sites very often yet, um, uh, and so I think that's still coming. But uh, this is how I see the space kind of evolving between the offsite. Mm-hmm. And the and the and the onsite. Well, one reason I'm kind of trying to keep just because we'll jump into the you know robotics robotics and automation in AAC in one second. One reason I'm trying to kind of keep it at the the more general level is because if you look at um, there's two, there's two things that I'm there's two or three things I'm kind of fascinated about in the bigger picture, other than the, just the technical applications, is um, what is the adoption curve or acceptability curve for humans in general? What is the business ad- adoption? curve and acceptability and, and imagination of use cases. And a lot of those, I think, are to attach people's conceptions of what these things can do. And then there's also the regulatory piece, right? Right now in the European Union, there's a there's regulation evolving around um, the, the role of around AI, right? And because society hasn't had these conversations for a while, there's this, I think, a bottleneck or there's a kind of a lot of rapid and not very effective learning around, oh, my goodness, you know, now we have to work out is a, is a is a you know diagnostic computer making a decision or not, 
All right. And that actually ends up being a big block for the industry um, because the regulatory status and the liability status of whether or not this machine is making a decision is pretty profound. And that will play itself out, I think, relatively quickly in robotics and AEC as the automation steps up. So if you don't have these general debates <laughs> in society around robotics and automation and therefore liability and you know autonomy, we'll, we'll, we'll have a business development pathway for lots of, industry, lots of the industry that then is like confronted with these questions. Um, so one last, you know, a couple more on the, on the general piece. Do you have any sense, and maybe, I mean, any, any of you can jump on this, is a drone just another kind of robot or is there some other sort of implication that's kind of coming out in that space? If we're that word. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think of, yeah. I think of drones as, as, as robots um, and kind of use that word interchangeably. Um, mm. Drone kind of right now becomes like shorthand for like a quadcopter aerial robot. Mm. But for example, like we work with Drone Deploy and they call, uh, you know, they'll call like a DJI or a Skydio uh, quadcopter. Mm. They'll call that an aerial drone and then they'll call spot yeah. a, a terrestrial or ground drone. Mm. Um, so I think drone and robot end up being somewhat interchangeable. But I think our concepts of drones really also revolve around the fact that uh, we understand the concept of operations and we understand the intent of those machines, that it's a very kind of specific and well-defined purpose of navigating around an environment and capturing data on that environment. And I think that gets maybe a little bit to your prior comment about having these general conversations and making these definitions, which is, um, and also the kind of popular ideas of, of robots in business, but in culture at large, which is, can you build expectations around what these things do? I think that's mm -hmm. been a real challenge with new types of robots, right? Like mm -hmm. when we experienced that, even with our two commercial robots, whereas like spot initially was relatively undefined because, you know, it can do quite mm -hmm. a few things. It's a general mobility solution. And now, you know, I have a very kind of vectored and focused approach on data capture, particularly in interior commercial construction environments, um, whereas drones, we can imagine data capture in exterior top-down environments and something like our warehouse robot um, stretch, just we just came out and like this thing is, you know, stacking boxes and unloading trucks. It's like very easy to understand what this thing does. And I think the more that people understand what something does and there's predictability in the behavior and the more that behavior is actually reliable and works mm -hmm. and adds value um getting back to the conversation about robots eventually you just start to look at it as a as a machine or a piece of equipment mm -hmm. i think like and this is not this is not a novel idea like lo lots of people have said this but i think often the term robot is something we use to describe uh, a new concept of automation for which we're not entirely clear on yet. We haven't really built in the full set of uh, expectations and concept of operations around that to where it becomes commonplace. And then we say, oh yeah, that's an, that's just a, that's an autonomous car or that's a Roomba or that's like a Husqvarna lawnmower. Um, eventually we kind of stop calling it a robot. It's just a machine that performs better than prior versions of that machine that had less autonomy and therefore were less useful. So one last question on the general stuff, and I might be kind of taxing your patience or your interest in, 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 in having a go at these things, but I think it's useful to kind of get it out since in general, as my in my experience, no one has this general conversation in relation to kind of AEC automation. Um, let, I mean, so shoot this down, but one thesis is, is that there are kind of three kind of vectors of, of advance in 
in in kind of contemporary robotics. One is like the um, the kind of mechanics. So how does the you know what what is it, what is the kind of physical composition of the objects and how effective is it? So in the case of for example Spot, you've got you know a quadruped. Uh, form factor, whereas other robots have, whereas others of your of your robots have, you know, wheels and whatnot, and then evolving competence around just the physics of an autonomous um, object or machine as one dimension. Then there's just like pure computation ability. So how, for example, you know, how much computation is required to balance a robot on four legs, and then there's the task specificity. So what types of things can it do once it can stand up and think um, so you can add things to it and so forth so if those are three tracks like the physics the computation and the kind of task specificity is there a sense that you know robotics in general because this is the last question before we talk about ac specifically is there a sense that um any one of those tracks is running ahead faster than the others or are they all roughly moving at the same speed maybe do you have a sense of that daniel that you know some aspect of robotics is moving forward faster than the other uh, no, I don't really know. Um, what we see, yeah, a lot. I, I would say a lot of our our my knowledge is contextual to AEC, so I don't want to comment on robotics in general. <laughs> hmm. Okay. Well, as I said, I might have overstretched. Um, so, uh, how would you define then? So, we'll start with you, Daniel. How would you define robotics in the AEC space? In other words, are there kind of definitive? kind of categorizations of robotics and automation for architecture, engineering, and construction, and the built environment in general, or is it just on-site and off-site is roughly the, the way we've, we've, we're, we're covering it? Ah, good question. I can answer that one. Um, so I, I see five categories. Now, this is not based on any kind of research. It's just my opinion. It's, I think the, the category one is, is kind of the off-site or the prefab um, um, robots. Uh, category the second category I see is we have this rise of what I call maybe project layout and controls for for construction space. So, uh, as mentioned, uh, dusty robots um, and, and and spots and things that are doing things like uh, tracking production productivity, laying out space. These are typically your smaller robots um, that are quite agile. Um, then I think there's a category of of Robotics, which you could argue is robotics or not, which would be wearables and kind of augmenting human capacity. Uh, and then you have the single task on-site robotics. So this would be something like Canvas just came out with their automated drywall system. And then you have like additive manufacturing for whole systems, which would be something like 3D printing or, or uh, uh, automated bricklaying. And I, I kind of, that's how I see these five spaces. Now, I think that's up for debate if these are the right five the ones. Fir the, fir the first one was? The first one was off, just off-site uh, assembly lines um, or, okay, yeah. or fabrication, uh, yeah. fabrication, which, of course, could have its own, its own kind of uh, ways of looking at robotics and, and things. But that's, that's how I see the, at least uh, looking at where the, the momentum is going, I see those five categories being the ones that are, mm -hmm. are emerging. Does that map to what you've your experience, Brian? Yeah, I think he I think he's right. I mean, I would probably generalize it if I went like one level above that. The way I tend to think about AEC robotics um, is is it is it free moving an environment, right? So is it is it something that actually needs to move through the construction of a building, or is it fixed as part of offsite manufacturing um, and everything that 
you know, everything that Petter's saying, like can, can easily fit under those. Those are like specific examples of those two types. And, and that itself just goes back to this kind of age old debate of how to manufacture buildings, you know, is the, is the manufacturing space and environment fixed and the building product moves through that space? Or is the, is the manufacturing process something that moves through the under construction space itself? Mm -hmm. And this is a, this is a kind of a debate and conversation that encompasses all sorts of construction automation from, you know, experiments in uh, bringing the factory and job site to the site, to offsite fabrication, to what we're seeing now, which is, you know, it's been around for decades, but we're starting to see the commercialization and just better functionality of mobile robots capable of, of moving through these spaces. Um, and I think they're all valuable. And what you have to figure out is which one is most valuable, where and how to use these technologies in combination. Do you, does that, does that, do those five categories work for you and the two kind of overarching free and fixed framing? Uh, categories. How do you feel about that, Petter? Uh, I actually, I love it. I think the, the both those ways are really interesting ways to categorize. I would I would add a third one, uh, which which kind of maybe a little bit overlaps with what um, Daniel said is is I would call it like how much it integrates into the status quo of construction. So uh, I, in this case, I would agree there is there is a category of like prefab uh, and industrialized construction, which would be like um, the bulk look of the world, the uh, Katera, uh, I believe Intelligent City from what I know. Um, then there is the other one. So um, it's basically integrating in today's construction. Um, so I, I'm not dividing them spatially in particular, but I think, I think that part is interesting. So like, I, I believe what uh, Dusty is doing and what Canvas is doing kind of fits in this criteria as in um, these these technologies and these approaches manage to work with today's construction. So they don't require pretty much anything um, to change. They kind of uh, add value, like add efficiency to today's construction. And then there are the kind of game changers, I would call them. And don't take it as like an endorsement of particular technologies or something. But like, I believe that uh, in, when I say game changers, I mean like this, this is something that kind of overhauls our today's approach to construction, changes it pretty significantly. And I think additive manufacturing is a great example of it. Um, so icons and mighty buildings of the world. I'm not, uh, and again, uh, just because game changers are really kind of a, uh, I guess, like a good uh, term. I'm not exactly meaning that, uh, um, like, uh, that's the way uh, construction is going to go. But but what what I mean here is that like it's completely new to like it kind of changes the status quo. And and to this, so there are very few, I believe, like um, um, real world examples yet. So that's why probably additive manufacturing made made. Uh, the most uh, advancement there. But I, I think like in terms of game changers, there's also uh, all the kind of research uh, approaches that we that we know that haven't yet made it to commercial. So like something that uh, DFAB at ETH is doing with uh, new kind of completely new approaches to, to construction, something that humans uh, could not do. So it's not like taking what humans have been doing for um, ages and then just making it uh, kind of more efficient, which I believe like to an extent is what like Canvas is doing. 
great company. Um, uh, but uh, it's more like completely rethinking it. Um, and so majority of the prop, like um, I think examples uh, in this area are the ones that are still in kind of very early research phase, like something that, I don't know, Akim Mengis is doing with uh, carbon fiber um, and, and so on. So this is like kind of, I, I would say another classification, another way to slice it. Mm. Uh, what is what is DFAP? Uh, I believe that the, Daniel is that. Uh, did I name it correctly? That's the that's the studio in um, in ETH Zurich. Yes. So so we ha- we call uh, the uh, the NCCR National Center for Competence and Research DFABs or for digital fabrication. And then we had uh, recently completed the DFAB House, um, which was. The first, uh, well, I guess uh, we're claiming the first robotically fabricated and permitted uh, uh, house structure in, um, yeah, that was made by mostly robotic and and fabrication processes. Uh, And someone lives in it now. So um, that's uh, uh, not counting 3D printing as the kind of structure, but using other robotically fabricated processes. Mm. Why not 3D printing? Uh, we did use 3D printing uh, and, and specifically 3D printed formwork for the um, for uh, what we call the smart slab. So this is a, a, a slab that's been geometrically optimized to carry structural load as efficiently as possible through 3D printing of the formwork. Uh, but we were uh, specifically not trying to use 3D printing of an entire structure, but instead looking at individual elements. So um, some of the specific innovation objects. And, and this project actually, I should say, started far before I came to ETH. Um, we've, we've been kind of studying how it was possible, but uh, there's many professors who are uh, responsible and should take credit for the actual innovations. But we had, for example, an in-situ robotic fabricator, which was uh, fabricating the wire mesh of a double curvature wall. Then these smart slabs, which were 3D printed, um, post-tensioned, uh, concrete slabs um, sat at t- on top of this, and then the uh, superstructure was uh, assembled with collaborative uh, robots, two, two robot arms in our robotic fabrication lab that used a gantry system um, and uh, uh, also in, in, in uh, coordination with a human um, to create these spatial timber assemblies, um, so basically 3D timber uh, assemblies. Um, and those are just a few examples. We also had something called smart dynamic casting, which is a, a slip form, essentially, uh, but that's uh, uh, kind of attenuated to, to change the, the, the size of the, of the column so that the column can have a, a nice uh, curvature without using formwork. Um, so these were a lot of the things that we were working on with the DFAB house and, and that I got to see implemented. Um, and it really was, as, as Peter said, um, pushing the boundaries of, of incremental innovation versus radical innovation, right? And, um, you know, some of these are quite radical and, and uh, or systemic in that they overturn the existing boundaries and ways that people work together. And uh, others fit within the existing ways that we do work. And, and depending on that also has an impact on how the technologies can diffuse in the market. So um, that's a lot of what we've been doing recently. <laughs> so... Um... So in terms of your categorization, Daniel, I mean, there's a few things that strike me as, as missing. Um, t- I mean, two things in particular. One is um, kind of things that move things around, and then other is things that lift things. 
and um, you could definitely kind of categorize them under on-site automation, but to some extent, um, they, they certainly things that, that, that move things around kind of span off-site and on-site. And in, in some ways, you know, there's partly why, um, you know, I'm kind of, I was asking about, you know, what, where robotics begins and, and mechanization or something else finishes. Because I remember seeing at a, a demonstration of a, of a thing called Kiwazo or Kiwazo, which is basically just an elevator for scaffolding. All right, but it's aggressively described as a robot. I have nothing against it. It may be very robotic, but it looks like an elevator and works like an elevator. And things that you know move things around, like that, whether lifting or just kind of distribution of parts uh, or materials. Um, I mean, some of this is interesting to me because because I think that uh, as legislation kind of moves in, I think these things will start to matter more. Certainly, investment and you know industry curiosity, and I have a sneaky feeling that. Um, uh, the, the the less description of robotics and the more description of just functional outcomes will end up helping the industry. I mean, your 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 description at a, it basically breaks things down into you know does it help the existing industry or is it radical in that sense? How much is that going to? How much is that boundary actually going to be the kind of the kind of uh, the definer of the progress path for for? robotics and automation in the industry because they, they they don't really overlap right and there's a, there's an argument to be made which is well at some point we just have to go over to new systems so at what point do we stop doing the old things right you see what i'm the, the, yeah. so the question is how, how much should we be emphasizing the new over the old in terms of automation um well i think uh, i mean it's a it's it's very interesting uh it's a very interesting question i think the adoption um of I mean, so far, uh, generally, the adoption of robotics and uh, construction has been um, relatively slow if you compare it to, I don't know, like what's happening in the digital world, obviously, because it's just much harder to change. But um, for um, for those kind of the game changing or um, technologies, it's, it's much harder to enter the market, obviously, because the legislation is not there, because uh, construction is uh, always consisting of a lot of different trades. And if you are basically taking a piece of the process and saying, okay, we're doing this part now completely differently, everybody around it, everybody else who does like, I don't know, window, like glazing or something like that uh, is going to have a hard time because they have to change their entire approach. So for those kind of new, completely radically new um, approaches, it's always going to be hard. Well, for a while, it's going to be much harder to uh, I guess enter the real world, the commercial world, and that's why that's why I'm saying that we're mainly seeing so far the advancements there, um, only in the kind of academic world, um, and with the small exception of additive manufacturing, which uh, there are successful venture-funded uh, companies. Um, I mean, they have successfully raised venture funding, but it's yet to be seen whether they uh, will be able to uh, succeed commercially. And you know, implement this um, on a uh, yeah, like, like commercially. So I think that's one of the main boundaries. It's just it seems like we're at a place where fundamental research needs to just get further for it to become so appealing that people would be uh, ready to change their ways, change the ways they've been uh, they've used to do it. That other trades that will have to interact with this would be ready to also kind of change uh, their approach. So that's, I, I think, is the biggest kind of um, road, like bottleneck or roadblock um, for the game-changing technologies. And uh, that's just going to probably take a little while. 
do you, where would you say Boston Dynamics stuff? I mean, I, my sense of Boston Dynamics is that it, you managed to kind of navigate that boundary pretty well, like enabling new things and being a new thing, um, but also kind of sitting on sort of old practices, Brian. Yeah, um, I mean, one of the things to look at, I mean, it's it's a disruptive technology for sure. It's it's a completely new type of, you know, entity that people are bringing into their environments and they have to figure out how to adapt that. So in that sense, we have to kind of cross that high tech product chasm to get the to get the mass market there. Um, but, you know, the two things I've really noticed is is one is the product is so valuable and adaptable because it's designed to fit into existing construction practices and environments. So you don't need to change your your worksite environment to accommodate it like you would for, say, like warehouse robotics, where the environment needs to be adapted to to foster that. Um, and I had a second point there. Sorry, I'm like super jet lagged. I did my like first trip uh, since COVID no uh, and, I'm, and I'm recovering. Um, and so it's some other thing about how it fits in the environment. So you don't have to change your environment for it. So in that sense, it kind of adapts and and fits into what you're doing. And then once you're using it, it kind of reveals the way in which it would disrupt an entire process, right? So it's not just about putting a robot on a job site and doing an automated scan. There's nothing particularly valuable about scanning a space one time with a robot, but what it does is it makes something like scanning a space so easy, so affordable, um, that you could actually think about the opportunities of scanning on a weekly basis instead of only a couple times over mm. a project. And then you can start mm. to tap into all of these emerging AI tools that allow for things like automated work in place quantification and things mm. of that nature. So it's kind of once it's there, you know, it, it fits in fairly well with existing workflows and processes, but then it then it accommodates or then it also allows you to reevaluate what you're doing to change an entire process. And that's really where the value add is, oh, I remember the other thread. The other thread I wanted to address was what was mentioned with a lot of what we think of as disruptive technologies, especially in academia, you know, really focus on this idea of freedom of form. And while there is obvious value to design, you know, there's a reason design exists in the world and we appreciate it. Um, that's not really the focus of a lot of the practical robots that we're seeing like Dusty and like Spot, which is to say, we're going to come in and we're going to help you build buildings the way that we've learned to build buildings over centuries. And we're going to do that more efficiently. Something like, you know, uh, what what Eteha and what, you know, Stuttgart are doing and what a lot of academia does with, with robots is thinks about how can I create, um, how can I have more freedom of geometric form in what I produce. And, you know, a lot of that becomes quite shallow and superficial as, as a research trajectory in terms of how it actually, you know, has a quantifiable benefit on the built environment. But, you know, there are aspects to that that are extremely interesting and then, you know, will become economically viable later on. But I think that's, that is, that's actually something that, you know, I would put into this conversation around categorization, which is, are you introducing robots to, you know, manipulate the world and manufacture as part of a construction process in order to allow for new design processes? Or are you trying to take kind of existing tried and true construction methodologies and, and, and make them more efficient? And I think it's a combination of what Peter and, and Daniel have really already hit on 
but that's where I kind of draw the line between um, some technologies, which is, yeah, fiber wound, you know, carbon fiber winding is, is really great for like a high performance, you know, sea vessel or for, you know, automotive design. I'm, you know, I'm not fully convinced that my ability to express new forms with, with high performance carbon fiber in an ar- in architecture is commercially viable. And this is part of what attracted me to, you know, the part of construction robotics that was in the field, like Dusty and Canvas and Hilti and Boston Dynamics, because I said it, it makes a lot of sense. And these are some of the lessons I learned at WeWork too, which is we don't spend enough time trying to, you know, improve existing practices and evaluate buildings based on things that are easily quantifiable, like cost, uh, efficiency, thermal comfort, they tend to be less sexy. It's not something you necessarily want to throw money at. It's not something you necessarily want to study as a young person. So that was kind of, I wanted to shift to that problem space after spending a huge part of my early career um, doing a lot of computational acrobatics around this idea of freedom of form, which by and large just manifests itself as, you know, really wealthy clients kind of essentially aggrandizing their power in the form of the built environment, right? Uh, that's where a lot of like that type of architecture, you know, I'm going to build some rich person or company a tower and that's a symbol of their power in the world. And that became less interesting to me over time. And that's when I kind of shifted to how do we just build better? Now, again, it's a spectrum. It's not just like a binary where you're doing one or the other. I have a lot of respect for, I think that DFAB project is incredible. And I think they kind of dabble on both sides of that. So it's just one second. So so we'll so we'll we'll talk about the um, as it were kind of constructability and and kind of fun uh, and kind of housing form uh, and the sort of aesthetic implications of automation. Just one second, but just to kind of say what you want to say, Dan. I'm just going to kind of set up set up for you at least at least a little bit, which is: um, Do you feel that in uh, ETH and DFAB that uh, you on a day-to-day basis have to kind of make a judgment call as to whether to research and facilitate automations of old processes and old cultures or to facilitate a new world of full automation with much more opportunity. Do you feel that that's a kind of cultural decision you have to make every you know, every day as you go forward? There are so many interesting, good things to say. So um, I'm, I'm going to come to that in a moment. And Brian, it's really interesting to hear your your journey because I'm a construction person that's moved into uh, now working a lot with with architects and and structural engineers and understanding how they think about these these problems. And uh, it's quite fascinating to see we have almost like a flip flop journey in, in in some of these ways. Um, so let let's say. Uh, at the NCCR Digital Fabrication, we're, we're about to enter into phase three. Um, it's important to know that this was a 12-year funded research program, which um, is the highest uh, uh, kind of awarded funding centers in, in Switzerland. And um, uh, by the way, like that kind of funding scheme is, is, uh, is really powerful because you can imagine um, the span of, of multiple projects stacked on top of each other, which is something that the that U.S. academia and other places don't get the, the privilege to do. Wait, 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 um, wait, hold on a second. Have we all agreed in, in the world today to call it academia, academia? I mean, everyone does it. So maybe we've just all agreed that academia is academia. <laughs> You're both saying it. 
Yeah, what, what, what do you call it? Uh, higher so education? Ac academia, but something now we're all calling academia. It's okay. Well, it may, yeah, it may not be the king's English, but yeah, it's an accepted <laughs> pronunciation. <laughs> I, 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 okay, I, I, I struggle between my California accent and my, uh, and, you know, speaking, okay. speaking in a German speaking country. So I, I struggle. Maybe. Is that, is that the way it's, is, is, is that the actual way that's said in, in, in American English, academia? I think so. I've, I've heard. <laughs> I apologize. I've I'm heard. So sorry. I've heard both, and I'm looking it up, like the Oxford official pronunciation, and it is a. You're right. It is. It is a long e. Looks to be the standard pronunciation. So, if you to carry on, Daniel, I just had to grab that one. Please, carry sure. on. no, no problem. Um, uh, where, where was I? Um, so, so essentially, we we have now we're about to enter into phase three, which is really about transfer, and this is where a lot of my research, I think, is starting to come in into force. Because, um, for example, we have a new PhD that's about the entrepreneurship and business models for for robotics, um, because. What happens is that in some other industries, if you invent really good things, um, they're going to find their way into the industry uh, eventually. But in AEC, and I can get into the theory and the practical behind all of this, um, we suffer a lot of innovation barriers. We have a long time to market. We have this valley of death where we don't see things uh, come to light. So if traditionally venture capital was not so interested, um, but also the R&D budgets of construction companies are rather small. Um, so you have all of these kind of systemic reasons why innovation has struggled. And um, so what we found is that it's not just a matter of course that we can assume that construction robotics are going to come out, especially those that are systemic in nature and cross over these boundaries. So what we're doing is actually looking now at the new business models and the entrepreneurial orientations in order to let this happen. Um, and we think there are other kind of more management focused uh, research that's needed. Um, we are we are also investigating right now kind of the, the project delivery models that make sense for, for robotics and digital fabrication, as well as trying to identify what we're calling um, DFD fab or design for digital fabrication, which is basically, um, if, you, if you know uh, DFMA, design for manufacturing and assembly, how does that operationalize in, in architecture and, and design? So this is more like the design management strategies. Um, so we think there's a lot of groundwork that needs to be done on the research side so that some of these systemic um, innovations can come, can, can make their way to the market. But there is a chasm and um, and I think uh, it is that Brian is exactly right that just by uh, kind of doing some things in a lab and just assuming that the industry is going to then take up these these innovations has been shown it, it does not happen. And um, uh, there's need for for work to translate that. OK, so uh, business innovation is part of your outlook is that what is that is that part of your way of dealing with the, the the blockage of the more innovative stuff yeah i think anytime that you you have a, a radical or or a systemic innovation you need to also have a new business model um and then i think it also opens up a conversation around um, um product architecture which i don't hear very often in in the current kind of robotics discourse yeah. um and the simple way to describe it is that 
the brick is kind of like the fundamental unit of analysis for for like a construction. It's what we think about. And it's designed for the human hand, right? It's designed that you pick it up and that you put it in place. Um, and the reason that we don't have larger size things in most cases, because we didn't have the technology that would move things and, and put them in place. And so if we imagine a robotic assembly future, what then will be the product architecture that will match this? And this is where I would kind of defend and say the need for the architectural work, even though I'm not an architect, is to understand the form factors and the future form factors of the product architecture of the buildings we'll be in. Um, and that's kind of a, I see it as a top-down approach of thinking about product structure. Then the bottom-up approach is how do we take processes like uh, like on-site fabrication or, or layout or, or monitoring and project controls, and how do we make those as efficient as possible? And I, I really believe both sides are needed. Mm. What is your, your view there, Petter? Um, yeah, I think um, I both... Um... Uh, completely agree with the spot on critique by uh, uh, Brian of the um, uh, kind of generally the approach to just free form. Um, and uh, I, I also like uh, completely agree and with the last statement of uh, by Daniel. And um, I think um, the terminology that's the best for this is uh, coined by um, Thomas Bach and Thomas Linner of uh, uh, TU Munich, um, which uh, they they are, they called it robot-oriented design in their book called Robot-Oriented Design, uh, which is basically like, uh, I guess in simple terms, it is like design for manufacturing and assembly for construction. Um, and uh, yeah, so, so the difference there is that it uh, talks about how if we're thinking about buildings that will be constructed uh, by robots throughout the entire process of like pre pre-manufacturing and then on-site, um, we probably would design them very differently. Not in a sense that they would be like very freeform, but in a sense that like the whole components and uh, uh, other parts would be, um, you know, would be designed for robots that that's what happened ha happens with manufacturing right like when you are um doing things that's like uh, crafted uh by hand usually uh you don't think about um i don't know um uh, like draft angles something you would do when you're doing like injection molding right so mm -hmm. you design things differently once you're designing them for 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 manufacturing, um, and that's what what's robot oriented design is, and and that's what what I guess I'm, I've been calling kind of game changers. The better term is robot oriented design. Is that um, we will we will see approaches that kind of are robot first, not human first. Now to add to this, I think uh, there is absolutely a pathway um, to get there for companies that initially start as human first, and and I think it's it's uh, so um, like for example. Uh, in, in my understanding of like uh, Boston Dynamics, and uh, even if uh, uh, you you start with uh, you get to the construction side by doing something for today's um, today's world uh, and kind of status quo, by uh, the, the, you can very easily scale from there into completely new approaches um, that uh, by like changing like the uh, quote unquote end effectors of uh, of your uh, robot platform. So so. Yeah, I think like it's it's really good to get to commercial world sooner and work from there. Um, 
maybe there is a way to kind of leapfrog this and come immediately from like uh, robot-oriented design and status quo change approach. Mm. We'll come. We'll come to you know in, in, to the constructability issue and 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 how that relates to to robotics and automation in a second. But let's just stay on 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 robotics and uh, in AC in a sort of slightly higher level just 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 for a bit. Is there a sense in which um, the investors and the industry is like they they know what they want now, right? So of the five categories that you laid out, Daniel, off site project layout and controls, wearables, on-site uh, tools and additive systems. Um, and then you've added, you know, free moving and fix as a, frame, as a framework to that. Would you say that investors and the market are, are converging a, across all five into one? Is it still all up for grabs? I mean, is there a, what, what is the, the evolutionary dynamic in terms of market pull and investment in, engagement? I mean, I don't think anybody's going to beat Spot. <laughs> um, uh, so maybe Brian could say that, but I, I, I see that field rapidly kind of, um, you know, uh, being clear and um, and have it, having some big investment. I see the, the 3D printing space has, has had a lot of investment and in scaling in the last couple of years. Um, yeah, I would say the only place where we see a little bit more uh, openness is the single task on site robots. There's been some good examples, and I know of a couple others in stealth mode that are doing some interesting stuff. And yeah. I, I would say that investors are very interested in this space because it fits so well um, with existing processes, right? So yeah. um, then, then I would say there's a you know, there's there's still some open space there, but overall, we've seen a huge, huge, unprecedented increase in in investment in all kinds of um, um, advanced fabrication and robotics for construction. Uh, you know, in the last five to ten years, so it's been really incredible to see investment uh, pouring in from governments, from venture capital, from all different spaces. Mm. Would you say that the investment is mainly? I mean, so you talk about you know on-site systems. Um, and the example you gave before is not the stealth example that you may be thinking of, but the example you gave before was of drywalling systems. Is the implication that investment is basically more conservative in that sense, as they want things that work today for existing workflows? Or is there an appetite for breaking through that kind of innovation barrier and getting more innovative full system things out into the market at scale? Because clearly things like Katera have money, but they're anomalous maybe in, the relate, in relation to the rest of the investment. I don't know, what would you say? Um, I, I mean, I, yeah, I could answer that. I mean, if, if I was an investor, I would I would not look for a systemic innovation. Um, even 3D printing, I think, has its has its uh, uh, challenges um, that that need to be solved, especially on the regulatory side. So, um, I think Atera is a nice cautionary tale of when you try to take on too much of the system. At the same time, I think that's where the biggest opportunities are. And uh, we spoke earlier about people like Intelligent City who are um, really trying to invest in their production platform and their production processes using uh, robots as part of a, a fabrication assembly line for CLT. And um, they, by doing so, I think, create more opportunities, but take on more risk. And um, it's, it's a balance game. Uh, I think the appetite for investment in these big solutions is maybe a little bit less right now, but uh, there's also a much bigger reward there, too. Do you have a sense of where the investment or the market is going, Brian? 
other than your own product? Obviously, including your own product, but broader, broader than your own product. Hmm. Uh, I would I would say probably not. I'm not a huge expert, although I I did tell my brother. I remember he asked years and years ago, and he was like, "Who who should I invest in in robotics?" And I was like, "You know, there's this company called Teradyne that seems to be doing really well, and this is the company that's acquired uh, that owns Universal Robots and owns uh, Mobile Industrial Robots." Uh, and that turned out to be a, a very wise investment. So my one piece of advice I ever gave was good. So I'm one for one and I'm going to retire from investment advice. But I would say that the areas, uh, if I were to invest, that I'd be really interested in would be um, agile agile mobile robots, right? So things like Spot where you're not limited by wheels or tracks and you can get into new types of environments that had, had typically been antagonistic to physical automation. Um, mobile manipulation, which would range from everything from like the spot arm to, um, you know, just putting arms on AMRs, but the idea that you're not just moving things or sensing things, but you can actually interact with things. Um, localization services, I think is really important. Um, job site communications. So like establishing, uh, localization service so i think there are two things here one is um how do you communicate remotely with a robot which is like communications networks like wi-fi um lte radios Mm -hmm. and then the other one is like localization services in the sense of how does the robot know where it is relative to your environment which is a combination Mm -hmm. of kind of inside out sensors you know how does Mm -hmm. how does a robot perceive the environment as well as outside in Mm -hmm. sensors anything from like gps to like ultrasonic Mm -hmm. beacons or ultra wideband stuff Mm -hmm. um and then i think lastly i'd be interested in investing in um probably a little bit more on the software and standard side but it's funny because talked about data interoperability ad nauseum over my kind of design career in terms of like, how do I take a digital model between lots of different pieces of software? But um, I think people are now awakening to this need for uh, hardware interoperability in the sense that a robot made by Boston Dynamics needs to communicate with robots made by other companies to achieve kind of more complex tasks and also to allow... um, robot operators and owners to be able to manage fleets of different types of robots in their environments. And I think, I think the danger from the VC side or the kind of, or not the, I would just say like the conversation with the VC side that always needs to happen is misaligned incentives between AEC stakeholders, because it's not just enough to be like, there's obvious value in the delivery of a building, but value to which party delivering the building. And this is where I think like a lot of VCs like lose their pants, so to speak, um, which, which is like, they did not understand that uh, <laughs> they did not understand that there were stakeholders in a, in a project that actually uh, benefit from inefficiency, right? The change order. Uh, the sub, the sub who makes money off change orders. Um, and there are so many ways in which misaligned incentives can manifest themselves both, you know, both like whether they're being done intentionally or just not, uh, they just kind of arise out of the system we've developed. And if you're not really in tune with that, you can be dangerously misled by the value of a particular technology. Mm. Uh, Patsy, do you have a feeling that the market is pulling in a specific direction among the kind of categories of, you know, of, of, of robot that we've discussed? Or is it still just, you know, we're evolving? Hmm. And uh, you mean like venture market mainly? 
Well, I mean, just the market itself. I mean, is the market pulling in a specific direction and is investment following it or is investment pulling in one direction and the market pulling another? Or how do you feel that the pull is from anybody that is going to, you know, get behind it as a consumer or as an investor? Where, where is it pulling? Mm, I, I think I think there has been there has been a positive shift. I think, um, yeah, like generally investment in um, in uh, like construction technology uh, in in a modern sense of this term um, was only like seven years ago. It was almost non-existent, and then. Um, what happened, uh, I, I believe, is uh, actually 3D printing probably did the best thing it will ever do is that it, it put the construction technology on the map. I, I don't uh, I don't really long uh, additive manufacturing and construction. Well, like 3D printing and construction, not, not the entire additive manufacturing, but uh, 3D printing and construction. But I think the one positive thing that it did was that it really put the whole industry on the map. Because uh, using the kind of the catchiness of it and the trendiness of it at the time, um, some companies secured big investments. I don't know what, where that's going to go. And I see that like uh, many of those companies actually are kind of gently walking back the 3D printing side of um, their operations that initially helped them raise money. But uh, the positive outcome of this is that like people are, became more comfortable with investing in uh, construction technology in general. And now there are investments into companies like Canvas, which I think I think Canvas is is, is a, actually a great example of uh, um, where I would put personally want to invest because it's a company that has very clear uh, application in the status quo world uh, today. Like yeah, if you ever spoke to uh, people in prefab or generally like uh, people in construction who are um, interested in advancement, uh, drywall was always a huge issue. It's, it's extremely labor intensive. It's uh, very t- like, uh, time consuming as well. So uh, I think it's it's a very good application for today's world, but also it's clear that with their technologies that are kind of not drywall related only, but like with their um, spatial awareness and other stuff, uh, they are they will be able to shift uh, as, as time moves on, they, they would be able to shift into um, more kind of, uh, uh, I guess, like robot-oriented design approach. Uh, and I'm speculating here. I have no inside knowledge of uh, how they're approaching this. Um, so, so yeah, I, I, if I were to, uh, you know, invest today, I would, I would, I would focus as uh, on companies that have a way to be commercial today in today's world, uh, but then have a pathway into how to exist in a robot-oriented construction world. Okay, so the question I'm going to ask in one second is, um, you know, does robotics lead to kind of modularized, scalable housing and construction solutions, or does scalable, modularized construction drive robotics? So I'm going to ask that question in a second. Before I get there, because um, that's partly where, I mean, where a fair amount of the conversation has kind of led to, um, my question is, uh, kind of provocatively, and you can you can answer this first, Brian. Is there a danger that in making the world more constructible, we lose the opportunity to create from first principles, right? Because because I, I, I hear what you say, Brian, that there is a kind of speculative um, 
mania in architecture that has been kind of facilitated by design tools, particularly parametrics that enable just fantastical forms. And if you can sell them to developers, particularly premium, you know, marquee projects, then great, you can build a career on that. But they're not very constructible and they're very sort of anomalous when it comes to the 95%, 98% of whatever gets built. Um, but then the question is, is there a danger that in making the world more constructible, let's say through robotics, but in general, we actually damage the imaginative potential of the of the built profession, right? So this is a kind of provocative pushback on on part of your premise, which is we should build more things more productively. What do you think about that, Brian? Yeah, I, you know, I, I would say probably not. I mean, there's certainly, you know, when you add add a level of robotics to the mix, there's kind of an abstraction, but with technology construction in general, there's always kind of an abstraction away from first principles. And I would, I think it's, I think it's an interesting thing to think about, but I would really be hesitant to say that like creativity is, is tied to access to first principles versus automation. I think these are Mm -hmm. just different constraints on one's creativity. And this is also why I try not to be hypercritical of things that I see that I can sometimes deem as, as superficial in the context of like, uh, bringing a product to market in in universities because that's not the entirety of what they're trying to accomplish. They're actually trying to train um, new minds entering the profession and give them kind of new critical lenses through which they can reevaluate the ways that we practice architecture and construction. So, and I think there's a lot of value to that experimentation. A lot of that is in the context of. Um, you know, with an with an emphasis on complex geometry, but you know that's okay. Um, it's it's an okay way of thinking about things. So, yeah i i don't I don't worry about that so much. That feels like kind of a false argument to me, um, and a way for people to go back into kind of a comfortable zone of you know things that are things that are very much about the image, right? Like we're very we're very comfortable in this business, like selling. An image, and I think that stuff will persist, right? There's a market for it. There's this kind of high-end commercial construction market where you'll always have that way of building, and you'll have like certain design firms that create like one-off tooling, right? Because there's no way to make real software around that because every project is an edge case. Um, but then, if you look at the rest of it, um, I think you had what I wanted to touch on was like modularity and how does all this relate to modularity? One of my biggest concerns about you know, emerging things that we're seeing, like constructing with composites, uh, large scale additive manufacturing, um, carbon fiber winding, is the, and then high performance architecture with like data driven design is that you're creating, you're creating something that, you're creating something that you cannot adapt later. You're creating, you know, it's it's a sustainability problem. It's an environmental issue. Um, So what I like to think about is, how do we go back to what we know about modularity and adaptive reuse and use that mm-hmm. as yet another lens that we're laying on layering on these technologies? And that's why I don't like concrete 3D printing. Personally, mm-hmm. I think it's I think concrete is is an issue and we should be thinking mm-hmm. more critically about it um, mm-hmm. just in general, whether it's robotic or not. Mm-hmm. But then I look at mm-hmm. something like the uh, fast brick robotics Hadrian X which says, okay, I'm not going to stack human sized bricks because that's ridiculous. You know, why would I still use something designed for the human hand or the Mason's hand? Um, Mm. But I'm also not going to 3d print an entire building that will be impossible 
to, to kind of demolish, I'm going to find this in between where I'm now sizing the module or the brick to the capabilities of the robot, cover more area faster. But I also have a system that's, that's flexible um, and can be modified. And I think also Daniel had mentioned, um, you know, using, using 3D printing for complex form work, but for these kind of modular pieces. So they're locally performative, which I think is great, mm. but you're not trying to kind of lock in. Well, I, I used a, you know, I used some kind of, you know, genetic algorithm or like optimization solver for this one day of the year and this one use of this building. And now I'm going to fix that in place forever. I think that's a ridiculous mm. way to practice, to practice mm. architecture and to construct. So I like when people are also able to, you know, we've talked about a lot of things now, like mobility of the robot, physical automation, um, misaligned incentives in the industry, uh, what's the business value and proposition here, but also modularity is so important for that kind of adaptive reuse. Mm. Well, I mean, so so I'll, I'll, I'll round back to that. Let let let, let me pr present present the question to you, kind of the, the advancement question to you this way, Daniel and Petter. Will um, robotics? Will the uptake of robotics and automation facilitate a drive towards more modularized, efficient, sustainable, um, adaptable construction methods, or will a shift towards modular construction accelerate the uptake of robotics, or is that just a kind of false parallelism? Start with you, Daniel. Uh, <clears throat> I'm going to get a little bit academic, but I promise not for too long. I mean, first, we should be clear about what modularity is. It's a way of breaking down a complex task into simpler uh, uh, tasks or modules um, so that we can be more efficient with our knowledge, right? So that you don't have to know everything about the product, but you can focus your attention on one single thing. And I'll draw from um, computer science uh, Conway's law, which states that any organization that uh, produces a design um, produces a design that's a copy of that organization's communication structure. And this has been called the, the mirroring hypothesis, which basically means how you're organized will constrain how you design um, mm. or, or how you build. And I think that touches a little bit on Brian's comments about the fragmentation as well. And so... Um, what I think we should do is we should think about what's if we imagine a robotic future, um, what's the appropriate decisions about modularity that we want to make? And that's the important kind of question that we have to decide. Um, and so how should we modularize? Should we modularize for circularity? Should we modularize for disassembly? And can robotics help us with those things? Um, and to me, that's really the, uh, the challenge and the opportunity that we, we have kind of going forward because um, the, in theory, the modules have not necessarily been set, um, the, the, the boundaries, right? Uh, we no longer have to think about the modularity being by trade as we understand today. So we have the concrete trade and the, and the mechanical engineering trade and the electrical contractor, and we have to have certain modularity rules so that those products can stay separate so the work and the knowledge can stay separate but we have for example um the next generation of the smart slab which we talked about so not only do we 3d print the formwork uh and this is work by benjamin dillenberger and arno schluter at, at eth not only do we 3d print the formwork but we can also 3d print um the uh the hvac kind of channeling uh and make an integrated product so that we can reduce the amount of concrete and we can also integrate additional products so we reduce the ceiling height. 
um, and kind of create a more integrative product. But now again, we run into the problem of, uh, of now systemic and, and radical change, which means it doesn't fit the existing market. So it's, it's not an easy answer, but I think that that's really how we need to think about uh, uh, what is the appropriate modularity that we, that we want in the future. So, Peter, you have a modular, I mean, you'll, you'll change the word, I know, but a modularized housing company under, under development. Would you say that you are going to end up facilitating the use of robotics in construction, in assembly, in fabrication and assembly and disassembly, or is it a mismatch in the question? Well, I mean, uh, it's definitely, uh, we would definitely love to end up uh, uh, using um it's definitely a goal to to use uh, in industrialized construction and uh, robotics in the future. And um, the uh, the two concepts, uh, I don't know how much one influences the other in particular, but they just play play along very nicely. So uh, you know, it's something that everybody in in this field has been talking about for ages. As in, like, uh, duh. Um, robotics works better when when things are a little bit more predictable and standard now i mean of course like now there are huge advancements in um uh interpretation and computer vision but uh still like uh, for produ- for production um it's it's nicer when things are somewhat more more standard and more predictable um so uh the thing is it also as brian said like every project is an edge case uh you know our our thesis is we're trying to standardize the um, uh, at least the internal design of the buildings uh, as much as as we can, and um, we are in per- like particularly even looking for parcels that are very very standard. Um, and with all those efforts on standardization, we still end up with uh, the fact that every project is somewhat different. So there there will always be uh, just the, the the fact that there is um, uh, I guess. Uh, real world around it will always make, uh, even no matter how hard you try to make things standard, it will always require some some uh, deviation from that. Um, yeah, uh, but uh, yeah, and, yeah I, I, I couldn't agree more about the kind of circular aspect as well and ability to de- disassemble things easily certainly helps there. And uh, um, I remember uh, being when, in my student days being at my, sorry, I'm, I'm a little bit rumbling here, but like uh, being at a lecture by uh, P- Patrick Schumacher. And uh, um, it was really interesting when, when he was talking about how they designed a building that like was somehow parametrically uh, um, uh, in, in interactive with it, with the context uh, and surrounding buildings. But when they completed it, uh, there was like immediately a new development uh, right next to it that completely uh, changed uh the surroundings and, uh, you know, they couldn't well, adapt to it. Pat, Pat, Patrick Schumacher would have just used that as an opportunity to say, you should give me more scope. You should let me yeah. design the entire world in my image. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so, so well, yeah. there's another episode of this series where your brother and co- and your co-founder of Apt um, uh, will be talking with Oliver Lang from Intelligent City. And so we were talking about some of that because Oliver Lang at Intelligent City definitely has the view that modularization of robotics go hand in hand and they actually create an, a kind of accelerated cycle of evolution in uh, on both sides right Robot, robots get better if people are designing you know building systems for them and building systems get better if you know you, you know you've got robotics involved and so his thesis is actually um significantly premised on the 
on the value add and sustainability. It's not just sustainability, it's a value add in the sense that it you know, creates all these kind of adaptable um, uh, typologies, both at the kind of building level and the block level and you know, at the urban scale, but also in terms of the kind of like, you know, circularity of, of materials that can be, you know, taken, taken away and disassembled and, and, and reused somewhere else. Um, his thesis uh, um, is very much based on the idea that robotics are essential for that. I mean, I'm not sure you might use the word essential, but they're you know very um, you know make a huge contribution to that. And so we'll have that. We'll have another episode of the series with with Fed uh, Novikov, your brother Petter, and, and Oliver to to explore that in more detail. Uh, Brian, do you have a sense of the uh, other kind of virtuous circle, or am I, am I am I taking it too far from Oliver's lead? Uh, between robotics and, and kind of modular construction, or is that not really part of your your robotics area? I mean, that's absolutely. I mean, that's that's my vision as well. Um, and I've always I was I was very fortunate to get to work in both worlds simultaneously at, at WeWork and kind of understand that. And but part of my deep interest in um, sensory uh, mobile robots in the field to monitor progress. Uh, was because I recognized that there is no world, no no real physical world, in which you can have a a modular, a perfect modular system, um, just because of the physics and and the realities of construction. There will always need to be a feedback system as part and parcel of your offsite modular system. And then I said, okay, like clearly there's there's this opportunity to kind of contribute to building that infrastructure. How do we establish rigorous data capture practices and, and establish uh, essentially reality, continuous reality capture feedback loops such that we can more effectively um, leverage and utilize modular offsite systems? Well, one thing I do think about Spot is that um, is that uh, when 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 the industry is slightly more advanced, you'll be able to sell to um, to, to the construction sector and um, the, you know, the, the, a system whereby you can basically attach Spot on site to a to a kind of attachment that makes it basically a, a rigid it gives it a rigid uh, fixed position and more kind of structural capabilities because right now it has to kind of use its own legs to lift things up right whereas if some arm attached to spot could you know attach to a rigid i'm just thinking of the, you know uh, how spot can be deployed in uh, in more of a kind of modular fabrication environment because right now i'd imagine it's not really ideal for that or am i wrong yeah i mean it remains to be seen what what uh, Spot's able to accomplish with its full-body mobile manipulation on on mm. job sites, but you know, no, I don't. I don't see like you know Spot like picking up and placing giant you know uh, giant mods. I mean, case case in point though is you know one is you need if you have any kind of robot on site, it's got to be responsive to a dynamic environment. So if you've ever been on like a high-rise project where they're using mods, right? So they're like mm. craning in prefab bathrooms, for example. Mm. One day there's a completely open space. The next day it's blocked by a bathroom. And then the next day the bathroom's actually put in place where it's supposed to be relative yeah. to the plan. So, you know, yeah. for one thing is you have to have a robot that can deal with that and perceive that and work around that. So that's one kind of very specific example of that interaction. But, you know, number two is you're always going to need some kind of feedback on that install process. So you're you're reacting to that and successfully navigating around that, but you're also reporting that back um, mm -hmm. such that the installation is being coordinated 
more smoothly. So, you know, there's all sorts of stuff with automation of both mini cranes and, and standard cranes that is interesting. And like, maybe that's the way that, you know, modular is kind of deployed. I don't think we need like giant humanoid robots, like walking around, like installing walls. Um, I think that it's enough to kind of crane them in, move them into position and have a very quick way of validating both before they're placed, validating that they're going to fit. And then after they're placed, validating that they've been placed. And I think that's, that's really probably enough to get us to an, you know, an extremely advanced um, level of automation on the job site. Uh, but, you know, a lot remains to be seen. Is it so just to finish on this point, would you say it's too much to say or is it about right to say that modularization in its broader sense, like componentized fabrication, assembly, disassembly, um, for whatever reason, efficiency, sustainability, you know, um, you know, adaptability, would you say that that will be the biggest driver overall of robotization in the AEC space in the next five or so years? Or is that is it just one of the drivers? Daniel, I think I think it's yeah. Go ahead, Daniel. Oh, I mean, I'm a huge proponent of modular and standardization, but I don't see it being the primary driver of robotics. I, I yeah, I think it will be a joint effort. I think that will be the driver for the kind of assembly line industrial robotics, um, the Kateras, the intelligent cities. Um, but I think you at the same time will have the, a, a big rise of the on-site uh, uh, single task or or kind of modular uh, on-site uh, 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 robotics. Modular meaning that the robot could have a couple different functions. Um, but I'm, I, I think it's I don't think it's going to be the off-site modular approach that's the biggest driver um, in the next five years. What what I actually meant was I mean maybe maybe answer this question. What I actually meant was will the would a, would a modularized housing or construction approach lead to robotize lead to more an accelerated robotization maybe more than other things. However, the the robots are manifested whether it's fabrication or on site or whatever it may be. The, the only thing that we see with the on site approach, and I know Peter knows something about this, is the is the platform approach, right? So or the continuity of processes. And Brian was talking earlier about how. If every project is an edge case, where do you invest in technology? You don't. You know, where do you where do you invest in in capital expenses? You don't. But what the modular kind of offsite uh, approach does is it creates a, a focus on product instead of project, and creates a, thinks about the building as a product, and then you can start making decisions that are rational based off of the idea that you have a specific product focus. And you're not just going to build whatever comes along that day. Um, mm -hmm. So that's the opportunity there to invest in in kind of production processes and production platforms. And I think companies like Bocluc and, and Intelligent City have been doing a really good job thinking through those paradigms. So that would be the opportunity, I think, for that. So, so last couple of questions. I mean, let's talk about governance for a second. Is is a, a robotics going to be shaped and accelerated, particularly by uh, regulation and um, code, uh, or is that just another dimension that will 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 be will be out there? How how can government? What what should governments do and, and municipal authorities do in relation to robotics and automation in in uh, in AEC? Maybe Peter, what what's your view on that? Yeah, um, uh, it will immediately circle back to the previous question. Um, 
the uh, I guess uh, th- there is kind of a several several steps of complexity because of this. Like uh, at least what we're seeing in um, in the United States is that uh, zoning and general like uh, codes, even despite them coming from kind of a single source, they once they get to the jurisdictions, they get adapted on the state level and jurisdiction level. Um, are very, very uh, different, um, and they really change from uh, jurisdiction to jurisdiction. Hence, they affect the ability to standardize, and that complicates at least the modularization and standardization. So because uh, in LA, we have to build things a certain way, and um, then, you know, in uh, even like in San Francisco, it's the other way. Um, really doesn't help standardizing things um, and really kind of stands in the way of uh, industrializing construction and uh, working there. And, if, you know, an example is um, like LA is considering right now uh, uh, banning um, wood, uh, any kind, including mass timber in, uh, in the city um, because of wildfire risk, which is, uh, I mean, it's dubious, but uh you know, if you have a company that's focused on on like CLT uh, industrial prefabrication, like I believe uh, um, Intelligent City is, for example, that like closes a market for you, or you have to, you know, have a, a immediately come up with like a steel or concrete offering, which which you know is a dramatic change if you have an established factory. So oh, lack of freedom here and very very constrained rules. Um, is 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 a really big factor in terms of um, in terms of adoption of, uh, of robotics. It probably does not affect that much the onset robotics, and uh, uh, but it certainly does affect the kind of uh, prefab uh, and uh, kind of offsite offsite standardization and offsite uh, robotics. Mm. And and Daniel, what do you think? regulation standardization what's its role yeah i think it still remains to be seen um i think one of this it's a question we're exploring now um one of the really positive things the last few years with nccr dfab here is the development of, of this social economic working group of which i'm a member and in november we're holding a session on liability and i think uh Maybe I can report back with updates, but uh, I, I think it's a it's a real question, and um, I think there are solutions. We saw solutions with the Defab House, um, but uh, at the same time, that was a single project where where we had to work hard to do that, and it can withhold mass scale ad- adoption. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, just to pass you on a second, but one, one idea for, for for standardization, which I think would be great if if academics would get involved with, would just be data capture, right? Because, you know, it, the ability of, of, of robots to orient themselves on the site, if there was a standardized way or, or a regulated way in which, you know, building sites have to have from day one some kind of calibration or registration system set in place, I think that would kind of incentivize the adoption of robots because you would know that from the moment they're deployed on site, they know where they are because by law, the site has to have both hard hats and whatever else, you know, steel cap boots and a registration protocol for robots rather than, you know, somebody having to try to set that up and then failing. What do you think about that in general, Brian, and my the crappy idea I just proposed? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, we're working with a lot of, uh, you know, universities who are also customers. I think Virginia Tech is putting out some really interesting 
work. They had recently published a paper on, you know, just this concept of quadrupeds for repeatable data capture and really just laying out the opportunities and current limitations, which I thought was just a really great paper to put out in the world. Um, and yeah, I think some of what you're saying, and you could actually, you know, take that all the way back to procurement and say, how are we procuring data capture? Because, you know, in a lot of cases we aren't, or at least it's very ill-defined. I'd actually start there um, and make sure that, you know, the industry is educated in the affordances of current data capture technology and then tying those into procurement so that you're actually building a project plan around that um, and then implementing that, you know, as part of your continuous improvement and lean processes, but also to a certain extent standardizing that as something that is, is procured and executed as part of, you know, any construction process. I mean, one of the things I would, I, you know, I, I would recommend to the industry that it, that it, that it um, and researchers that they, that they kind of preemptively start to resolve when it goes back to the question of, you know, what robots are versus machines versus automation is, you know, the safety issues. All right. Because, you know, when I, um, so one of my first exposures to, I mean, I mean kind of like, like live exposures to robotics um, was in a place in San Francisco at a place called Other Lab. Saul Griffiths is kind of like, you know, research studio. And he was describing to me, he showed me the, the, the soft robotics they have. And I said, well, what's this for? And he said, well, actually there's lots of regulation as to how close individuals can be to, to, to hardware robots, because it's just extremely unsafe, no matter how well calibrated they are um, and how many safety features, because these things will crush you, you know, even without even trying. And I, and I think that will come into play relatively soon. I and mean, one reason I'm a bit suspicious of, uh, with, with apologies, Brian, of, of you know, because you guys keep doing this, uh, of dancing robot videos is because it, I think, creates the wrong kind of cultural signal about these devices. They are massively dangerous, even in the best case, without any nefarious intent. Um, and and I think that the industry getting on, on getting, getting ahead of that will prevent what I think is happening, both in terms of, you know, um, automated vehicles and AI, where the policymakers kind of just knee-jerk backlash against it five years late, right? Um, and I think that that would be helpful to deployment of robots to basically have a cultural engagement and a regulatory engagement around what they are. I suspect quite a lot of robotics you know, tool makers will start declassifying their objects as robots at some point to, to escape legislation, which has been framed crudely. But anyway, this all the stuff will um, you know, will work itself out. Last question. I mean, whether in terms of what you, well, let's, let's do a sort of do it into in sort of two versions of it. One is what do you think will happen in the next five or 10 years around robotics and automation AEC? And what would you like to happen? It might be the same thing, <laughs> but it might not be the same thing. Um, so what do you think is going to happen just organically? And what would be your dream scenario? Maybe start with you, Pata. Wow. Uh, well, okay. Uh, I'll try to separate, separate the two. Um, um, yeah, I mean, uh, I guess like the first thing that comes to mind is I, I really am rooting, rooting for companies like, uh, Intelligent City. And, um, I hope that, uh, companies that kind of, um, approach, um, robotics and construction as, uh, um, immediately with like sustainability in mind and circus, like circularity in mind, um, I, I really hope that, that this takes off and kind of makes it uh, just takes a larger share of the market of new construction that I mean, yeah, that's probably that, that's what immediately comes to mind. 
and you, Daniel? I'll start with what I hope happens is just more of the more of the same, the continual investment, continual development, continued research. Um, the one thing that I, I don't want to predict it will happen, but I, I have a bad gut feeling about is I think we will have at some point, similar to the AVs, we will have a, 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 an accident involving an on-site construction robot. And this is not something I yeah. wish to happen. And I think that will be a really, um, it, it could slow momentum or it could pause things. Um, and we we should actually, I mean, look, construction is an extremely dangerous industry. And um, we're introducing, as Brian says, more uh, kind of complexity and, and chaos, or, or, or John, you were saying that. So it, it, inevitably, it's going to happen. And um, so that's something I think that will happen in the future. And I don't, I don't wish it, but I think it will. Brian. Yeah, so, um, so within five years, right? So I, I guess I would say, you know, I think design automation and kind of design intelligence distribution and publishing applications will start to wake up to specific downstream opportunities for industrialized construction. So the high bars and test fits of the world, I think they're already kind of starting to have these conversations, but they've been focused on, you know, design intelligence and not as much on constructability, but there's a really natural fit there, I think. Um, Secondly, I would say that we're going to see continuous uh, reality capture uh, become standardly owner mandated. Um, and I think, you know, mostly to just ease the handoff so that, you know, we can get to the point where BIM and related data sets can actually be used for facility management um, or for digital twin kind of operational models. Because right now there's just an intense amount of labor that has to go into that handoff. To make that a reality. Okay, so yeah. So on that point, I mean, let me let me park let me park this with one with one 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 sort of sort of rounding off question. Since you've raised it, what does ha- what needs to happen in software? I mean, that, that links to lots of other episodes in this series and 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 our sponsor um, Epic Games that is you know is, is pushing twin motion out of the market as a as a kind of framework for the digital twin. What what would you like to see as part of the you know ideal scenario? Let's I'll sort of extend the question to all of you again in the software space specifically. So what would you like the software to do um is it better digital twin tools i mean is it expand on that point brian and then we'll, I'll, I'll ask you like, the, the rest of you guys to, to share on that what should software do to facilitate this yeah i think i think that's a tough question because if you you know di- the digital twin is not like a software application um it's it's a combination of all sorts of technologies iot technology specifically um it's a lot of different streaming data sets that need to be managed um if someone and and also like a lot of it will just come back again to like job site connectivity and like this idea of localization services, which is um, I'm going to have sensors on site. Some of them might be fixed. Some of them might be walking around on legs. They need to be able to connect to a network so I can access data remotely or stream data remotely. Um, and they need to be able to know where they are within the building so that they are contextualized appropriately. So in as much as software can kind of fix those core issues, you know, then we can actually talk about what is the kind of front end of that look like. But I think these are infrastructural things that need to be dealt with, but certainly opportunities for software companies to take on. Do you have a sense of the software space better? I mean, does, does the software aspect of it matter to you right now? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. For us, I would say the, the most, uh, um, 
important thing is to have software that uh, factors in um, various um, various building codes and not municipal codes and, and all of those things and can pair this with a relatively standardized kit of parts and rearrange this kit of parts to work with with those requirements. So it's it's kind of something that's been, um, you know, um, actively in different uh development starting from like early flux to um, what TestFit is doing right now, though it's probably even more the data question than than um, software question because it's just really hard to collect all this various data on um, how codes work in every little jurisdiction. Um, so rather than, you know, uh, the, the software side is probably even easier in that sense. How, how would how can software help with robotics and automation in AEC, Daniel, just to finish off? Yeah, I'm a big believer in creation of a fabrication-aware um, design software uh, as a way to integrate across the supply chain. And, you know, the way of thinking about it is right now we start with design and then there's this kind of rationalization towards fabrication. That's the existing process. And I think the future opportunity is to take fabrication specific processes and start to question what could be then the design and, and build tools um, like similar to, to TestFit or, or Hypar, but that are specifically tailored to fabrication systems. And if those fabrication systems are robotics, um, then then there's a natural fit there. So I, I see the need to, to create design tools that enable um, robotic fabrication rather than keep the existing design process and just uh, uh, you know, then when the design is done, say, okay, now let's scratch our heads and figure out how to build it with a robot. Mm. Okay, brilliant. I mean, I think that was a great start. Obviously, all these things are, you know, intensely uh, complex and overlapping, and it's all kind of evolving. But I think that was a useful kind of orientation point. So thanks very much for joining in. And let's do this again soon. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you. Thanks.